0: From the campuses of East Tennessee State University in Johnson City, Tennessee, and Emory & Henry College in Emory, Virginia, this is Religion for Life, religionforlife.com. My name is John Shuck. Okay, here's the deal. When you think of phrases that are gay-friendly, you don't necessarily think evangelical Christianity. In fact, it has been one of the institutions that has been hostile to LGBT people. But today's guest is turning that around. His name is Ken Wilson, and he's the pastor of the Vineyard Church in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And he's the author of A Letter to My Congregation, An Evangelical Pastor's Path to Embracing People Who Are Gay, Lesbian, and Transgender in the Company of Jesus. Uh, Welcome, Ken, to Religion for Life.
1: My pleasure being here.
0: Uh, give me a little bit of a history in a nutshell, if you can, uh, about the Vineyard denomination and and your congregation, the Vineyard Church of Ann Arbor.
1: Right. So Vineyard is a newer denomination. It came out of the Jesus movement of the nineteen seventies and nineteen eighties. Um, it was founded uh, by John Wimber, who was the manager producer of the Righteous Brothers back in the day, uh-huh. and came mainly out of you know Southern California and the hippies coming to to faith in Jesus as if for the first time, so it's sometimes known as a rock and roll church, um, contemporary Christian, you know, music, worship music. Uh, and then our church, Vineyard Church of Ann Arbor, is a church that actually started in my living room back in 1975, and uh, was a, just a small group for a number of years, and eventually we morphed into a congregation and became a Vineyard Church in the mid-1990s. So we're in Ann Arbor, which is a secular left-leaning town, university town, you know, home to the University of Michigan. And our mission as a congregation is to make faith accessible to people from a more secular, left-leaning kind of community. So we don't want to just be an evangelical church that gathers evangelicals in, <laughs> into a kind of club, so to speak. But we want to make the gospel known to people who haven't had access to the gospel.
0: And how many people attend your church?
1: So I think we're around 550 to 600 in average attendance on a given Sunday. Uh, So a lot more people, of course, uh, connected to the congregation, but that's our average attendance.
0: And, and of course, you are, in addition to being pastor of this particular congregation, you also uh, oversee a number of them in regards to the denomination. Is that right?
1: Right. Well, I I used to be, I was on the national board uh, of the vineyard uh, for about seven years. I stepped down from that a couple of years ago, and uh, during that period, I was the overseer of about 115 of our vineyard churches in the Great Lakes region. But now I'm just a local vineyard pastor.
0: And you describe yourself, and you've just said it, uh, the word evangelical. What does that word, what does evangelical mean for you, and, and what are your commitments as an Evangelical.
1: Right. So the, the word evangelical is an adjective that is related to the word for good news. So it's, uh, evangelicals are people who want to make the good news available to people, especially to those who haven't heard the good news before. So, so that's, uh, that's what it means for me to be an evangelical. Of course, evangelicalism is a very diverse movement in the United States. It's probably the second largest second to Roman Catholicism in terms of adherence in the Christian landscape. Um, but that's uh, so. There's many different versions of it evangelical, um, but uh, that's the heart of it: is making the good news known to people.
0: And uh, you've uh, wrote a book called A Letter to My Congregation. How did that come to be?
1: Well, uh, it, that's a that's a, that's a big, big question because I, I started off um, accepting the traditional consensus about gay and lesbian people, which was essentially that you know you were supposed to. Love the sinner, but hate the sin, and any kind of same-sex relationship was definitely outside the boundaries of holiness. So that was my received tradition on that, and I and I pastored according to that perspective for many years. I've been in pastoral ministry for I don't know, close to forty years. Started when I was quite young uh, as a early Jesus freak, so to speak, um, and then we we moved our church back to Ann Arbor in about two thousand one. And I started noticing a shift in the kind of people who were coming to me with stories about being gay or homosexual. So in the preceding years, the people I knew who were gay were conflicted about their sexuality and treated it like a temptation and didn't want to be gay and were trying hard not to be. And then when I came back to Ann Arbor, I started hearing different stories of people who had loved ones who were gay who were in long-term partnerships with each other some of whom had actually adopted children together or heard stories about from parents who had uh, adolescent or young adult kids who were discovering that they were only same-sex attracted and what should they do about that and uh, of course it became a lot more open uh, the 1990s, uh, was a lot more hidden. There were a lot of gay people around, but I don't think I knew who they were because they weren't open about it. And and that started to shift when I came back to Ann Arbor. So that that made me think. Hmm. As I started to read the texts in the Bible that prohibit homo same-sex relationships, there are you know there are about half a dozen in the uh, in the Bible that address this issue specifically. Um, They've just didn't seem to apply to the kind of people that I was meeting who had a different story about being gay. And so that made me wonder, hmm, am I reading these texts clearly? Do I understand them in their historical context? How are we supposed to apply these texts today? And that got me, that got me on, a, on a trajectory of taking a look at these much more carefully and much more closely informed by my pastoral experience. The book really came out of that process, which has been going on, I'd say, for some years, maybe three, four, five years. Um, And to be honest, the actual uh, precipitating cause to write a book is I was doing a little meditation on Psalm 23 and uh, kind of picturing Jesus in my mind's eye, and it became very vivid, like like it was actually Jesus, it felt like, in, in the prayer experience. And he turned to me and said, why don't you write a letter to your congregation? And that was that was like a great relief to me because I, my perspectives were changing. I had become increasingly um, conflicted about all the exclusionary practices that are part of the traditional reading on this issue, and I needed a way to communicate it with my congregation, but I I didn't want to do it in a way that you know, put focus on some of the vulnerable gay people who are just starting to join our church. You know, I didn't want to have like a congregational meeting to talk about what should we do about people who are gay. Um, and so instead, I decided to write a book, uh, write a long letter that became a book that took people through the process that I went through to change my mind and my heart about this issue. Like a lot of congregations don't realize. How much pressure pastors are under when they're facing a cultural, religious controversy like the gay issue has become today. They don't realize how involved some of these questions are and what it means to actually exclude someone when you're doing that face-to-face and dealing with the realities of people's actual lives. Um, And so the book is an attempt to unpack that process for the reader, which originally were just the members of my congregation.
0: And so um, did the congregation get a preview of this letter? Did you preach part of it in sermons? Or is this book that has just been published here in 2014, uh, their first hearing of it as well?
1: Right. So I started working on it, oh, I would guess maybe 2011, 2012, um, started, uh, started work on it and then I had an opportunity to present a paper at the Society of Vineyard Scholars, the denomination that I'm part of. I did that back in April of 2013, and then I finished up the original letter to my congregation and made it available to anyone who wanted a copy of it from our congregation in, would have been May of last year, May of 2013. But I said, it's a long letter. It's, uh, it's about 80, 80 to 100 pages, so... Anyone who wants to read the entirety of the letter, just email me and I'll send you a PDF of, uh, of it. And I think we had a, about 225 people from the congregation who took me up on the offer. Of course, I got feedback from different members of the congregation, and, and that began uh, some, some discussions on the on the question between me and individual members. Of course, all along, I was talking with our church board and our pastoral team and our and our lay leaders about this in, in various ways to keep them posted about my thinking about this and to do some discussion and dialogue about it. But it was really May 2013 when the congregation became uh, more informed about my perspective through receiving this letter to my congregation. And then this past February just uh, released it as a book because there were a number of people, pastors in the vineyard and in the other church uh church situations that had heard about it and and wanted to get copies. So I thought, well, I'll just make it available
0: as a book. So what has been your congregation's reaction?
1: Right. So here's the thing. I mean, for a, for a pastor in an evangelical congregation such as mine to deal with this question, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot at stake. Uh huh. Um, and I was quite uh, I would say quite fearful about the consequences of. Changing my perspective. Um, and in fact, it was difficult. There were a number of people who felt like they needed to leave the congregation because of where I was at. We lost, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars and contributions from people who left. Um, you know, some of my dear friends felt like they couldn't continue to be part of our church. So it was painful and, and difficult. And, and that process began probably around. May of 2013, and, um, but we survived as a congregation, and, and um, we've seen new people come who wouldn't uh, have come before to a church like this, you know, not just people who are gay and lesbian, but people who have dear friends and loved ones who are gay and lesbian, and, and the old, you know, love the sinner but hate the sin just doesn't, uh, doesn't make sense to them, given the people involved.
0: Well, you know, studies uh, such as the Pew Forum are showing that younger people in their 20s and 30s are staying away from the churches of all kinds in droves. Uh, do you think some of that is because of the church's negative attitudes towards LGBT people?
1: Yes, absolutely, and that's—I mean—that's supported by the good demographic studies as well. I mean, we we know that the evangelical church in the United States has uh, stopped growing in 1993 largely as a kind of reaction to the branding of evangelicalism by the religious right and all the focus on the social issues, including homosexuality. And uh, that, that same trend is only amplified in the millennial generation. I think, I think in a recent study, a full third of millennials who stopped going to church did so because of the church's stance toward uh, their gay and lesbian friends and loved ones.
0: If you're just joining us on Religion for Life, my guest is Ken Wilson. He is the founding pastor of the Vineyard Church of Ann Arbor, Michigan, an evangelical congregation, and he's come out with a book called A Letter to My Congregation, An Evangelical Pastor's Path to Embracing People Who Are Gay, Lesbian, and Transgender into the Company of Jesus. And this this is a big deal. As, as I read your book, I kept thinking uh, that the LGBT liberation movement, now has arrived uh, when an influential evangelical pastor writes about the importance of his church accepting gay people as full members and leaders. Then, then it's happening.
1: Yep, I think I think it is, and I know many many evangelical pastors who are very conflicted about the exclusionary approach to gay and lesbian people, um, and I think are looking for a way to. Make a change in their congregations. They're intimidated. It's 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 a daunting task because often the people who are very supportive financially of congregations and who are very influential and who volunteer their time um, are a little bit older and often they're more traditionalist on this uh, particular issue. So there's a, you know it's a it's a big deal going on in the evangelical church. But I think within a few short years, we're going to be seeing more and more evangelical churches that are finding a way to make space for their gay and lesbian members.
0: Uh, the foreword uh, to your book uh, has, was written by David Gushy, who was ethics Christian ethics professor at Mercer University. And uh, in his in his foreword, he comes out as supportive of gay people, and that's that's a big deal. Can you tell us a little bit about how that happened?
1: Right. Well, uh, I I knew David from a meeting that I had with him and some other evangelical leaders and some top environmental scientists back in 2006 So we met under other circumstances. And um, I respected him as a a good scholar and Christian thinker in the realm of ethics with a strong evangelical background. I believe David uh, did regular ethics columns for Christianity Today, which is kind of the the Billy Graham publication Uh of evangelicalism. And um, and so I read his Kingdom Ethics, which is a, really a top top notch evangelical book on the question of ethics, and really liked it, but disagreed with what he the small section he had on homosexuality. So I gave him a call, and and it turned out he was in the process of of uh, thinking more deeply about this and rethinking his perspective, and so almost on a whim when I finished my letter to my congregation, I sent him a copy. And I was hoping he might say, well, you know, give it a little blurb and say, I don't agree with the conclusions, but I appreciate the process that Ken's been through, but instead he offered to be helpful in any way. So I said, well, would you write a forward? And he did. And it was uh, quite a forward indeed. So, you yeah, know, I think that's a, that's a very significant development I think it's a sign that there there's a real shift going on in the evangelical world, world on this issue and you know for me it's not just a, it's not a matter of like going with the trends, because the culture is going in this direction it's really about caring for people and what does the Bible really intend to be saying in those prohibitory texts and um, how should we be caring for the gay and lesbian people who are part of our churches, especially the ones who have formed covenantal partnerships with one another, want to be faithful uh, for the rest of their lives to one another exclusively, and are, you know, adopting children or raising children together. Are we really supposed to be breaking up those families and, and excluding those people from church or, you know, excluding them from various ways of serving, which is just another way of saying there's something really wrong with what you're doing or have we misread what the Bible's teaching on this topic what is what is what are those texts really aimed at are they aimed at same-sex monogamous Christian couples who are committing to be faithful to each other for life and raising kids or are they are they aimed at the primary same-sex relationships of that period, which were extremely violent and exploitative, things like pederasty, you know, where where older men would take on pre-adolescent males as mentors in exchange for sexual services, or temple prostitution, or or slave sex, where men would have sex with their slaves, whether male or female, because they thought they owned them as property. You know, This was the form of same-sex um, activity that was characteristic uh, in the ancient world, and uh, it, it really wasn't known that what we have, the modern-day monogamous gay relationships, was not something that was front and center for for that period. So I think it's pretty, pretty clear that the Scripture is prohibiting something that needs to be prohibited, this kind of exploitative, degrading same-sex activity, just as there's exploitative, degrading heterosexual activity. Uh, But the question of whether these same texts are meant to apply to the monogamous gay partnerships that we know of today, I think that's just a disputable issue in the same way that, you know, when is it okay to divorce and remarry? That's a disputable issue. We don't exclude people over that. We don't split churches over that. I I just see it in the same light. It's a disputable issue, so we shouldn't exclude over this question.
0: And of course, as you were talking about, you had to Come to terms yourself uh, with the Bible and the and the so-called clobber texts; those texts uh, that have been singled out to disempower LGBT people. And 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 not to go into any more detail about the Bible, but uh, but what resources or authors did you find uh, helpful and um, influential to you, and who might be as well influential to evangelicals uh, right. to help them get beyond a narrow reading of the Bible?
1: Well, one one of the reasons that I read the read the book is I wrote the book is that there weren't that many authors, certainly not from the evangelical world, that were writing in a way that I found to be very helpful. They weren't dealing with the same pastoral dilemmas that I was dealing with. Um, The one book that I did find quite helpful, and it was a book recommended by Christianity Today, is Sarah Rudin's Paul Among the People. And she was a Greco-Roman scholar who really understands from the writing of the period what the homosexuality of that period was actually like. And when I read that book, I found it very, very helpful. So I strongly recommend Sarah Rudin's Paul Among the People for those from an evangelical background. And then, of course, um, I didn't get to this book until after I'd written my letter, but there was a, there's a book by, uh, by Justin Lee called Porn. And he was like a evangelical god kid growing up and did everything right, but just had powerful, strong, same-sex attraction and had to wrestle with this question. And and his his autobiography called Porn is also very helpful and enlightening.
0: And of course, uh, now the new resource will be Ken Wilson's book, A Letter to My Congregation, An Evangelical Pastor's Path to Embracing People Who Are Gay, Lesbian, and Transgender Into the Company of Jesus. And Ken, I I just want you to know that I am rooting for you. I've been engaged in this uh, struggle for some time, and it has become personal in that I recently officiated at the wedding uh, for my daughter and her wife, and uh, I want a world in which they are embraced and treated equally, and it's going to take all of us, including The evangelical churches uh, to make this happen. And so I I want you to know that uh, I appreciate your letter to the congregation. I think it's a good way to go. And I hope more evangelical pastors, especially in my area, ahem, ahem, uh, will engage in this uh, open soul searching uh, with their congregations.
1: Right. And this is happening in evangelical churches all across the country. There are moms and dads just like you who have dear loved ones, uh, you know, a gay son, a gay daughter in their early twenties, maybe kind of coming out to them. And, you know, just consider the torment, the psychological torture device these parents are in. They feel like they have to choose between their evangelical faith, which is right at the heart of their, their, their being. It's in their holy of holies, so to speak, and their love for their child and feeling like they have to choose one over against the other. And that's a kind of psychological torture that a lot of parents are, are going through. So I think we're, and, and as I saw that process unfold in my own congregation, I said, there's just something wrong about this. This is not, this is, this is a false choice. Uh, this is not something that people should have to be choosing between loving their child or loving their faith. Have we gotten it wrong on this one issue in our evangelical faith?
0: And I'm thinking as uh, perhaps some evangelical pastors are listening to this or thinking about your book, I imagine some, they, they, they might be watching you <laughs> to see how, uh, how, how you go through this with your congregation. And, and you have a strategy, um, well, maybe that isn't the correct word, but, but you call it a third way, which I th- thought was helpful in terms of helping all of your congregation, not insisting, but kind of introducing it uh, rather than going to zero to 60 in 10 seconds, but kind of introducing it and letting uh, the time take its uh, course.
1: Yeah, and the key to the third way is Paul's uh, letter to the Romans, chapter 14 and 15, where he introduces this category called disputable matters. You know, there are certain things that we hold in common as Christians, and if we start throwing those out, you know, why call ourselves Christians? You know, the the core faith that is enshrined in the Apostles' Creed, for example. You know what C.S. Lewis called mere Christianity. And the real power of Christianity is in those core truths. But there's a set of other issues, and some of them are in the moral realm, that are not central to what it means to be a Christian. You know, an example of that might be, when can you divorce and get remarried without your remarriage being ongoing adultery, which, according to the teaching of Jesus, is the case, Um, and yet we don't exclude remarried people from our churches, and we don't, you know, say you can't be on the church board if you were remarried in many of our ar- evangelical churches. Or the question of is killing in war murder? You know, if you look at some of the teaching in the New Testament, in the practice of the early church, forbidding their members from, you know, killing in war, you might well make the case that that's that's true. But that's a disputable matter in the church. We don't divide over that. We don't exclude people over that. So this other question of what do we do about people who are in love with one another, they can't fall in love with someone who's the opposite sex, they've always only experienced strong same-sex attraction, they don't have the gift of celibacy, they need someone to be partnered with in a pair-bonding way. What do we do about these people and how do the text apply to them? That's a disputable matter. And fortunately, Paul gave us a way through these kind of issues. He said, you know, go ahead and hold your different convictions, but stay together um, and fully accept each other. In other words, don't exclude someone over an issue like this. And I think if if churches could begin to put into practice what's really part of what the evangelical would call the Roman's road, you know, that's the... That's the evangelical code word for the gospel is taught by Paul in Romans. If we could actually go a little bit further down the Romans road to Romans 14, I think we have a path for dealing with this issue. And then time will tell. It'll sort itself out. You know, we'll, Jesus said you will you will know them by their fruits, and we will see the fruits of this in, in the lives of gay families and gay couples. And And, you know, we'll eventually arrive at a, had a consensus around this issue sometime in the future, just as we have on other issues.
0: And we're just about running out of time, but I, I do want to ask you this one question. In, in your book, you said you hadn't been asked. Uh, to officiate at a same gender wedding or holy union, but uh, since you've written the book, have you since, especially uh, now, Michigan, uh, even for at least for a day, uh, approved uh, same sex marriages? It's still it's on stay, I understand. But uh, what? How do you think that's going to play out in, in, with you and your congregation?
1: Well, we're just going to have to have to wait and see. And of course, it's it's not something I would talk about on the on the radio because. Um, You know, the gay people who come to evangelical churches are under a kind of spotlight already. They're Mm -hmm. stigmatized already. And so just as we wouldn't, I wouldn't say to a congregation, you know, to the congregation, hey, you know, so-and-so, they were divorced uh, 10 years ago, and now they want to get remarried. What do you think, congregation? Should we marry them or not? I wouldn't do that to someone who had been through the pain of a divorce.
0: No, you want to put her to a vote.
1: No, I would I would meet with them. I would I would say what is what is God doing in their lives? What is my responsibility here? And then I do do what I felt best. Uh, and so I I owe that same thing to the to the gay couples who are part of our congregation. But nope, nope. I wouldn't be I wouldn't be saying, "Hey, I I'm doing this tomorrow or next week," cuz uh, that would just shine a spotlight on them in a way that wouldn't be helpful, especially in this crazy controversy that we've got ourselves in over this issue you know why are we worried about this stuff rather than bigger issues like greed and war and and matters like that i just i just don't get it
0: i don't get it either i'm with you and and again uh very supportive of your work and thankful for you and your book ken wilson a letter to my congregation an evangelical pastor's path to embracing people who are gay lesbian and transgender into the company of jesus ken thank you for this and thank you for the time today on religion for life Thanks so much, John. You've been listening to Religion for Life, a program at the intersection of religion, social justice, and public life. My name is John Shuck. I'm the minister of the First Presbyterian Church of Elizabethton, Tennessee. Our website is fpcelizabethton.org. You can find more information about this program and links to podcasts at religionforlife.com. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, hear us on iTunes. Religion for Life is co-produced by WETS-FM in Johnson City, Tennessee. And W E H C F M, and River Virginia. Be well.